read that. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me now in the book of Ephesians, we have been going through this book and uh, Lord willing, it seems as if we may finish uh, before the end of this year. Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul writes this one of the prison epistles, and we have been going through this, as I mentioned, verse by verse, and we're in chapter 6, and our reading will begin again in verse 10 of chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. Our study has been in the subject of spiritual warfare, and we last week began with three pieces of the six of the armor that God has given to us in order to stand firm and resist Satan, and the armor that is given is listed here, but we begin our reading in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin this one. Father, we once again ask that your spirit would fill us, illumine our minds and quicken our hearts, that we might understand your word. And through that understanding, Lord, you would cause us to have the mind of Christ, to be more conformed to his image. May you open the eyes of our heart once again that we might see great and mighty things in your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a great admiration for a particular type of missionary. And those are missionaries who we might call pioneer missionaries. Pioneer missionaries are missionaries that go into a place where Christ has not been named, where people have not heard the name of Christ and have risked a great deal. It's difficult enough for a missionary to go off to the field, leaving perhaps the ease and the comfort of the United States, And to trust God that God would provide. And that is why when we went to Uganda this past summer, it was a blessing not only to serve there, but to be able to fellowship even for a short period of time with the Binghams because they are pioneer missionaries. When they left for the field, they left some in the early part of this decade, I believe some eight years ago. And when they got there, they were walking into a war zone in which the Lord's 
resistance army was fighting against the government in order to take control. And if you know anything about the Lord's resistance army, you know that it is led by a man named Joseph Cohn, who is one who professes to be a spiritual leader who will become demonically possessed and then he will give his instructions or commands, one in which his army has abducted tens of thousands of children in order to fight, causing them to murder not only their own villages, but to murder their own parents in order that they might disassociate themselves from any semblance of a home. It is in that context that even when we were there, we watched one child as who was struggling and we were sitting in the van and how this child came up to the van with the other pastor and the pastor cut off a, an amulet or a fetish that he had that he believed that would protect him from becoming sick or becoming oppressed by demonic forces and that child was so engripped with fear. Yet it was the cutting off of that and the throwing of that away that released him from that fear. That is the world that is reality because there is a spiritual dimension. And as we've been studying about the Christian life, as we've been studying the life of the believer, it is something that I think oftentimes we as believers forget because so much of Christianity is oftentimes about me. My comfort, my life, my own career, my own happiness, and we forget that life is a battle. And not to minimize life's struggles, but life is not primarily a battle about one's marriage or a battle for one's children or a battle to earn a living, not primarily a battle even about living. Although some may struggle in those areas and that may very well be true, but the primary battle that God wants us to see is that battle is a spiritual battle. And that is what Paul has been talking about here. It is a spiritual battle in an unseen war. It is a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. It's a battle for your family, for your friends, for your children, for their spiritual welfare. It is a battle for their souls that we fight. A battle for the eternal destiny of people. Statistically, or roughly 150,000 people die every single day in the world. And their destiny, their destiny will be dependent upon whether or not they have received Christ as their Lord and Savior. The overriding command that we find here throughout this text, throughout this whole section, by which some commentators will set this section aside particularly is the command to stand firm, to be a Christian who is strong. To stand firm against the schemes of the devil because there will always be a battle that wages war against you. And the more mature you are, the better you will be able to handle the issues and the problems and the struggles that life brings. And there are different people, there are different types of people who respond to life differently. We all know that. Paul reminds the Thessalonian church of that. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he tells them, We urge you, brethren, and he's writing to the whole church, admonish the unruly, 
encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. There are those who are in the church whose spiritual lives perhaps make them a little bit more unruly. We're to treat them in a certain way, to admonish or correct them. There are those who are faint-hearted. A problem comes by and it just blows them over and they become so discouraged. One little comment and they'll become so discouraged they'll say, I quit. There are others who are weak. Maybe you know people, you always have to hold them up somehow. You always have to prop them up. You always have to shovel them encouragement. It says, be patient with everyone. And all of these relate to issues that we face, spiritual issues. And for all Christians, we are to, as Paul says here, stand firm and not be blown over by the things that come. And he gives us clear instructions as Paul is likely either here chained to a guard or the guard is outside. And the Spirit of God leads Paul to use the analogy of a soldier whose armor is there. And we went over last week three pieces of that armor in order that you might be a strong believer. And the first was a belt of truth, referring to the objective word of God and also the person who is truthful. If you're going to be a person who is secure in God, who is a strong believer, you're going to be a person who is truthful. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. And that is not only that righteousness with which God has given to us, but more so the practical righteousness of living rightly. And then the gospel of peace, we're to be prepared. We're to be prepared knowing, knowing and having the confidence that we have made our peace with God. And to be able to share that peace with others. Truth, righteousness and peace. And today we come to the last three pieces of armor. And the fourth is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Verse 16. It says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which we will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, there were different types of shields the Romans used. One particular type was a rather lightweight one. It was about two feet in diameter, a smaller shield. Often used in hand-to-hand combat. It was strapped to the arm with some leather. It was used in close combat with others. And it was to parry the blows of somebody who would be swinging a sword or something at you. And that was one type of a shield. But the shield that is pictured here, that the word uses here, is a larger shield. Rectangular in shape, about two to two and a half feet wide and about four feet high. And it was designed so that the average Roman soldier could duck down and hide behind this particular shield. The Latin word for this was scutum. And it's from the word which we get the word door because it was like a small door. And it was made of two layers of laminated wood with some leather on the outside and linen. And it was bound from the top to the bottom with iron. And there were decorations on the front. And it was used by soldiers in the Roman army. You've probably seen them in some movie where they would stand in a row, a long row with these shields that would be lined up. And not only would it defend them against the enemy who was coming from the left... But when they stood next to a soldier who was also holding it on his left, it would be defending their, their, their fellow soldier who was on the other side and would defend their right side. Other soldiers would hide behind the shield. They would stand in formation, often an array. They would be called a phalanx and they would march in a long square. 
Those soldiers that stood behind the front row of these soldiers who had all of their shields lined up would hold their shields up to defend against any, any arrows or whatnot that might come from ahead. And the beauty of this is that oftentimes you would have a, a soldier would stand next to you and guard your right side and, and you would be guarding the soldier's right side who was standing next to you. And I love Psalm 3 verse 3 which says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. Not only to the right, but to the left. But God is a shield all around us to shield us. The shields, you see, would be very effective from repelling the projectiles that would come. They would harmlessly either bounce off or in New Testament times, what they would do is they would dip the arrows the enemy would into some pitch. And pitch was a, was a petroleum product that would, be, that, would be, that would be flammable. And they would light these arrows prior to shooting them at the enemy. But when the pitch would hit a particular person or whatnot, it would splatter that pitch all over the place, causing fires and burns in people. But they would take these shields, you see, and they would dip these shields in water. And as I mentioned, they would be made of leather and of linen, such that what? Such that it would extinguish the arrows that would come and bury themselves within the shield. And the analogy that Paul gives here of this shield is the shield of faith. And it's not the faith in terms of a Christian body of beliefs. It's the faith that a Christian has in terms of trust. It's trust in God. The exercise of faith is that we will be people, are to be people who trust in God. And we all exercise faith to one extent or another. Every day you exercise faith. Every day you exercise faith to some extent. When you came in here and you sat on that chair, you're exercising faith that that chair will hold you up. You came into this building exercising faith that this ceiling would not collapse. You exercise faith when you climb into your car. You exercise faith in all sorts of ways when you eat the food from the grocery store that it won't be poisonous for you. You exercise faith and your faith is only as good as the object in which you put it in. Your faith is only as good as the object in which you put it in. Many people... In our country have faced difficult times in this recession. And many people have come to realize perhaps that their faith and their trust wasn't solely and completely in God. Because when that paycheck doesn't come every single week, our trust is stretched and our faith is stretched as to do we believe God will provide. Some put their faith in their abilities and skills And we know that that can fade. Some put their faith in others and the fickleness of what others may think of them. And we know that that can be something that will just turn on a dime. But if a person's faith is in God, you see, their trust is in God, then they will be a secure individual. There's no need to fear, no need to be worried, no need to be anxious, no need to run and hide. Because faith brings with it security when one trusts in God. And if one's relationship with God is weak and their faith is weak, they will be dominated, I tell you, by fear. Your faith is only as good 
as what you put it in. And the evil one, it says here, their flaming arrows or his flaming arrows come primarily in the form of what? A temptation to sin. Anything to deviate your faith brings to us in different forms. The world tempts us to doubt God, to envy others, to have pride or despair or become discouraged or angry or covetous or to hate others. But faith shields us from all of those things. Because as I shared with you last time, sin at its essence brings with it a lie, doesn't it? It brings with it a lie and it says, if you take this, if you take this, you'll feel better. If you do this, you'll be farther ahead. You'll be happier. If you take this shortcut or if you lie or you you cheat or you do whatever it takes, you'll be farther along and it'll be more satisfying. It offers you a lie. And that lie only is satisfactory for a very short period of time. And it drags one in to despair because there is guilt because of that sin. And it hurts our relationship with God, separating us from true fellowship with God in our walk with Him. Without faith, a Christian can never do great things for God. Do you know one of the things that missionaries struggle with most oftentimes is that very first step. That very first step. Of giving up the comfort that they have here in the States and leaving for the field. Or walking out and stepping out in faith. And trusting that God will provide for all of their needs. Trusting that if God has called, they can be bold. And God will protect and provide for them. And that is why I admire pioneer missionaries who go out because there is no one else there. There is no plan. You don't know what's going to happen. They go into areas of the world which are more dangerous. And God has called those people there and He gifts them with a greater amount of faith. And so we are to be people who exercise great faith and to put on that shield, trusting in God and who He is in His Word. Secondly, the fifth piece of armor is called the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Among Romans, the helmet was either made of leather or made of metal. And there was generally a band that would protect the cheek and part of the mouth. And there would be a part that would come back around the helmet that would protect the neck. It would be made of, of iron or steel. And it would be lined. It would be lined with a sponge or felt because, you know, it would be heavy. And it would be softer on the head. And it was an essential part. It was a critical part of a soldier's armor to put on that helmet. Just like today, this afternoon, if I go home and I decide I'm going to turn on the TV and watch the Seahawks play, or I'm going to watch any football team play, you and I would be appalled if we saw Matt Hasselbeck without a helmet. And if he was playing there, one of the defensive backs, not have a helmet. And everybody else did. We would be appalled. We'd say to ourselves, that guy is going to get his head smashed in. He's going to get a concussion. And you won't see that defensive back. He's not going to be diving at anyone else's legs. Or if he's a running back, he's not going to be charging with his head down. But you put on a helmet on that player and they are going to do things that they might not normally do. Why? Because a helmet or that salvation, as Paul says here, gives us confidence. Doesn't it? It gives you confidence that you can do things that you might not normally do. And that is what salvation brings to us. 
That confidence that in life, no matter what happens, we are safe and we are secure. And that is what gives us boldness. That no matter what someone else does to us, they can never take away the fact that we are saved if we've placed our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. No one can do anything from us and take away from us the love of God, which can never be separated from us. Our eternal destiny is not based upon what we do, our works, although that is an evidence of it. It's not something we can lose. We have confidence that we can step out and we're spiritually protected because the Spirit of God is with you. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is why I think oftentimes that Christians would live and give their lives to go to a place that might be disease infested or war torn or dangerous. Because you know what? When you don't think correctly about the fact that you are saved, then you will have a lot of fear. There's no reason why Christians should even go to places like that unless they have confidence, you know, in God. And there's no reason why they should risk standing up for their truth to the truth or standing to be ostracized or willing to be persecuted. Why, though? Because they have confidence in God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11 tells us what? But since we are of the day, and he's speaking of believers, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And he tells them why about the helmet, the hope of salvation. And he says this in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whatever we are awake, whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, what? Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words and build one another up, just as you also are doing. You imagine that one day when you die, and if you're a Christian, you're going to go to heaven. And you don't have to be afraid that everybody is going to be sitting right here, and they're going to show a film strip of Joe's life, all the good and bad things, all the embarrassing things. You don't have to worry about that. That was in an old film I saw as a kid, you know. They'd show you a big film, and everybody's, everybody's laughing, giggling, or whatever, at the poor person who's standing up here. You don't have to be afraid of that, because you see, that's not going to happen. For the Christian, there is not condemnation. For the Christian, there is not judgment. There's the Bema seat that we come before the seat of Christ and there is reward for the things that we have done. Now, there are going to be differences in the rewards that people receive. Some will receive more, some will receive less, depending upon what they have done here and their works. But there's no fear, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for what? Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So take the helmet of salvation and have confidence, he says. And then lastly, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is, verse 17, the Word of God. 
You see, up through the passage here, there have been five particular items. And all of those items were primarily defensive. And this is the only, this is the only item that is used as an offensive weapon as well as a defensive weapon. The soldier who carried one of these, it is spoken of, was a typical Roman short sword. Double-edged. It was carried by soldiers. It was carried by the soldiers in the scriptures, by those soldiers who came to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the type of sword that Peter used when he cut off the high priest's servant's ear. It was a sword that is popular in hand-to-hand combat, worn right by the person's person's belt, always in the scabbard, always ready to use. And that is the way that the Word of God is to be to you and to me. The Word of God is to be readily available right there for us to use, to parry the blows of Satan or to use an offensive weapon to strengthen and encourage us. That is the way the Word of God is to be used. Just as a soldier would never think of running off and engaging the enemy without his Without his uh, weapon, so too the Christian isn't either. No Roman soldier would run towards the enemy without his sword. And that is why it is critical for us to know how to use it well. To know how to use it well. There's a reason why you don't let your kids play with the kitchen knives. Why? They probably cut themselves. They don't know how to use it well. They don't know how to wield it. It's probably very heavy for them. And that's how it is with many adults. They don't know how to wield the Word of God just as a child wouldn't know how to wield a butcher knife. I remember when I got my first set of knives, I bought them because they were cheap. They were $10, a whole set of them. And I looked at them. I didn't know what they were for. Some were long and serrated and others were long and sharp and pointed and others were short and pointed and others had a ridge on them. And I didn't know how to use them and I would just use whatever seemed to work. And it would be hard because I'd be, you know, taking the skin off of my chicken or whatnot. And I wouldn't know which one to use. I'd just use which one was the sharpest. No, that's how it is. We need to know. How are we going to use the Word of God? And practically speaking, many of you here today may not know how to use the Word of God. And I don't know if you do or are not in the habit of it or in the habit of it of bringing your Bibles here to church. And that's important for you to do. That's important for you to do because you need to look and see where is it. And when we look at a different passage or whatnot, you need to learn where is it found in the scriptures. And is the speaker saying what is in the word of God. And it is a model as well to your children that you feel this book is important. Because Bible illiteracy in the States has gone way down in the decades. Those who are admissions counselors to various colleges and seminaries have found that people do not know the Word of God anymore. They don't know. They take these aptitude tests and they score very poorly. Not only do people not know, churches don't encourage them to know. Churches don't encourage people to go to their Sunday evening service or to go to Bible studies or to go to Sunday school or whatever it might be. People don't know the Word of God as they used to. So bring your Bibles to church. If you need one, there's plenty free ones back there on the literature table. But the best-selling book in all of history of, of, of mankind is the Word of God. And yet so few people know the Word of God. 
some wise friends of mine were sharing with me, they have young children, they commented to me that reading of the scriptures is not really a matter of having enough time. Everyone, no matter if you're a soldier or a CEO, has time to read the scriptures. It's a matter of priority. You could have scriptures on on a CD and play it in your car or an MP3 or Bibles and all sorts of avenues in which we can read and study the Word of God. It's a matter of priority. We often say, oh, we're so busy. I was reading about the life of Susanna Wesley last week, born in... January 20th in 1669, daughter of a pastor, married a pastor, and yet she was determined that she would not only raise her children to know God, but she would model it for them as well. When her husband was away, she would be involved in the church. They had a church service in their own parsonage, and she would read a sermon from, 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 her, from her husband that he had written they would have a time of worship. And she would homeschool all of her kids. She had 19 children. She still spent, though, an hour every single week with each one of her children. And you'd say, boy, I'll tell you, she must have been a busy mom. How did she squeeze in time for the Lord? She did. Every day she spent two hours with the Lord. Even among her 19 children. And if she couldn't find a place... She couldn't find a place that was quiet in some room. She would pull her apron over her head and the children knew that was her time to be alone with the Lord in prayer. And if a mother of 19 can spend two hours every day with God, it's entirely possible for you and I to spend 20 minutes. I don't know why they produce these Bibles that always say things like the one-minute Bible or the one-minute devotional, as if that's all the time that you might have. It's a matter of priority. Because the Word of God to you and to I in our walk with God is life. It is life. And if we aren't in the Word of God, we won't know how are we going to have hope when discouraging times come. We aren't in the Word of God. How can we use it to encourage others or to correct ideas that come into our mind that lead us to think in particular ways? How is it that we're going to teach even our children to love God rather than walking away from God? If we don't love the Word of God, how can we evaluate the issues of our day? To look at things from God's point of view and not from our own personal experience, which many people do. When Jesus was walking in the desert, when he was facing the temptations that Satan would bring to him each and every time, he quoted from the scriptures. Deuteronomy used to refute the temptations so that he wouldn't fall into them. The word of God is not only defensive, but you see, it's also offensive. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the word of God is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's why some people don't like the Bible. That's why some people have such difficulty reading the scriptures because it brings a conviction that maybe my life is not right with God. 
So if you're going to be a person who is a strong Christian, who's able to stand firm and not be blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes, by every thought that you hear on television, if you're going to be a Christian who's going to have a sensitive heart towards sin and going to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves, you've got to be in the Word of God to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to treasure it, because it is life. It is life. That is how you find success. Just as God said to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law will not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will have success and then your way will be prosperous. That is how you find success in life. So if you want to be a Christian who's strong, who can stand firm, because the battle is a spiritual battle, then put on truth. Put on righteousness. Put on the gospel of peace and faith and confidence that your salvation is secure. And take the word of God and know it and read it. As you wear the armor of God. A little piece of history for you. During the time of the Roman Caesars, the 12 Caesars, they'll call it, the Roman army would conduct morning, ex- morning inspections. And the centurion would come out and the soldiers would line up. And there would be a centurion, he would inspect each legionnaire. And the legionnaire, when the centurion would come by, take his fists clasp it on his breastplate it would make a ringing sound and he would do that at the strongest place you see because the breastplate was formed in the strongest place to protect the heart and as he struck his armor he would shout integras that meant material wholeness or completeness or entirety And the centurion would listen to this cry of integris as well as the ring on the breastplate. And after he was satisfied that that would protect him, he would move on to the next soldier who would do the same thing. The next man, the next man, the next man. And at the same time, during that time, the Praetorians or the imperial bodyguard had risen to power. They were the Soldiers that were the most politically correct. It was the Praetorian Guard that was likely those that were around Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians. Soldiers from the legions, the finest. And they would no longer shout integris as they were inspected and as they wrapped their fists against their armor. They would instead yell, Hail Caesar! Hail Caesar in order to signify that their heart belonged to the imperial personage, not to some unit, not to some institution, but not to some code, but to a person they would be dedicated to. Well, a century had passed since the Praetorians had begun their rise to power. And there was beginning to be a rift between those of the common legion and the imperial bodyguard. And because the imperial bodyguard had begun to indulge in excesses, corruption. The difference between the two organizations, the legionnaires, the common soldier, they would stop saying integris as they wrapped their breastplate, but they would begin to say integer, 
integer, which meant undiminished, complete, or perfect. And it not only indicated that their, their, their armor was sound, but it would indicate that they were sound in character as well. And that's what they began to call in pride. Because to be a person who was an integer was to be a person of integrity, not of corruption or immorality like the Praetorian Guard was. And they continued to serve them, continued to serve them quite well. Over 400 years, they held the line, the Romans did, against the Goths and the Vandals. But by near the end of the 4th century, because of the social decline and the infection of immorality, the Praetorian Guard had its effects upon the legion as well. And one 4th century Roman general wrote this, quote, When because of negligence and laziness, Parade ground drills were abandoned. The customary armor began to feel heavy. Since the soldiers rarely, if ever, wore it. Therefore, they first asked the emperor to set aside the breastplates and mail, and then the helmets. So our soldiers fought the Goths without any protection. For the heart and head, and were often beaten by archers. Although there were many disasters which led to the loss of great cities, no one tried to restore the armor to the infantry. They took their armor off. And when the armor came off, so too did their integrity. Unquote. And it was only a matter of a few years until the legion rotted from within and the, Roman, the Romans and their empire fell to the gates to the barbarians. And that is what happens to Christians. You become a believer in Christ and oftentimes you're excited to do the things of God and to live a righteous life and to indulge yourselves in the word of God so that you would be pure and you fight the fight and you're enthusiastic and you're energized. But after a while, perhaps the armor feels a little heavy on you. And so you say you're going to fight without the breastplate or you're going to fight without the helmet or you're going to fight and wear your own type of shoes or whatever it is and then you begin to lose and you don't know why it's because of what the lure of temptation not to take up the armor that you have been given in order to be a strong believer to stand firm to be truthful no matter what the consequences might be to live a righteous life, no matter who might say what. To share the gospel with people who may what? Not like you because of it. To be a person, to be a person of integrity. Is to take up the armor of God and to live the life of victory that God has in store for you and for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, someday, O oh God, the roll call and the clarion shout will be given. And, O oh Father, as we stand before your throne, we pray, O oh Father, that we might be able to take our fists and to wrap our armor and say, Hail King Jesus fully dedicated with integrity, coming back home in victory. 
May you, O God, cause us to stand firm and to realize, O God, that all that happens is by your purpose. And may we fight the good fight of the faith and not collapse, not run. Encourage, O God, those who have perhaps fallen away and struggle. And may you give them a renewed strength and fill them, O God, with your Spirit, that they might soar above their circumstances, buoyed by your grace. May they be strong in order to stand firm. In Jesus' name, amen.